At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello, uh, welcome everyone to this another Drug Science Podcast. Today we're going deep into the dark web with Dr. Julia Buxton, who is... Well, are you a criminologist, Julia, or a, 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 what are you, a sociologist? How would you describe yourself? Nomadic, just wandering around all different disciplines. And, and what I've learned in my traverse across conflict, peace studies, public policy and anti-criminology is that most disciplines just seem to be obsessed with how to control and manage young men. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, probably not a bad thing to be focused on. If someone had started on me a bit younger, maybe I wouldn't have got into the trouble I got. But we, we can come back to that. But, but tell us a bit at the beginning about, tell us a bit about your background in how you got into this whole field of drug policy in the first place, please. Okay, well, um, I guess for people who are familiar with the international drug control system, you know, this 100-year-old model, and what it's like, you know, tried to do was navigate this, this dual-use dilemma, didn't it, between, you know, ensuring that there was enough access to, to medical treatments, opioid analgesics, and then on the flip side to contain illicit markets. And the reason I got involved in drug policy was because I saw both of those aspects of, of drug policy failing. In terms of, you know, access to, to medical opioids and medical opioid analgesics, I had a very, very close family relative who was very loved and who died of terminal cancer. And I spent many, many an hour um, during sessions of chemotherapy at places like the Marsden Hospital, where I had the opportunity to talk to many other families who'd come from overseas for treatment, uh, palliative care and chemotherapy. And, you know, you kind of get to having these conversations with people. And I was just absolutely horrified to learn how difficult access was to opioid analgesics in, in so many parts of this world. So on the one hand, you know, it kind of really got me interested in what are the obstacles to people being able to access medical morphine? You know, I think the statistics, David, now are something like 86% of global morphine stocks consumed by just five or six countries. So I was really interested in that kind of inequality aspect. And then on the, you know, illicit market side, I also saw that strategy there was was very much failing, you know, in my own local community where you'd have, you know, constant police raids and we've cleared drugs out of your community and it was just, you know, this constant <laughs> cycle of new people coming in and dealing. So there was all that was going on at the same time. By background and training, I, um, I'm a, a political scientist. I worked in governance and conflict security and development and all of those things that were all kind of very sexy and exciting in the 1990s and 2000s. And what was very, very interesting when I was working in uh, looking at kind of conflicts and civil conflicts was just that drugs you know, cocaine, heroin were becoming a really, really important part of that narrative. And I think, unfortunately, that led to some very disastrous uh, peace building and post-conflict recovery programs, and we're still living with the consequences of those. So on all levels, really, I've kind of been drawn into drug policy through professional, personal, political, and uh, every angle that I look at drug policy from, I think it's an abject failure. Well, I don't think I'm going to disagree with you on any of that. I mean, do, you, do you want to reflect a little bit on and why is it is it the puritans have just dominated is it that the 
the military have sort of seen it as an opportunity for more funding. I mean, what, what would your sort of high-level analysis be of why it's failed? Patients not having enough voice? I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of all of those, isn't it? I mean, I, I kind of look at this through the, the lens of institutional path dependence. And, and my argument essentially is that we created a system over 100 years ago. It was focused on supply side controls. It was focused on punishment. It was focused on plants. And we were kind of very much locked into an international system through the drug treaties, which has kind of perpetuated that model and that framework of, of policy, not just, you know, obviously in the UK, but internationally. Um, so every other country is basically laboring under the same flailing and failing system. So I think it's that institutional path dependency. It's the problem of trying to affect change within the international system, within the United Nations system. And I think there's also, you know, a real kind of policy atrophy. You know, when you come out mm. of um, development or, you know, kind of other areas like that, where we've got mendis- uh, gender mainstreaming and rights based approaches in policy design. And none of this happens in drug policy. It just sits in a silo, completely detached, I think, from the real world of, you know, evidence based policies and evidence based research and these kinds of things. It's, it's just a dinosaur, I think, on the policy scene. And that's what's so fascinating about it. But it is a dinosaur because people have resisted people like you and me trying to change things. Do you think it's just passive or do you think there's an active res- resistance? I think there's an, I think there's both. I think that's the problem. You know, it's kind mm. of trying to, you know, forge alliances internationally and across thematic sectors with people who are, you know, moderately still aligned with drug policy. You know, it's, it's still very dangerous to talk about decriminalization and legalization in some contexts. Whereas, you know, the reality we're seeing so many decriminalization initiatives around the world at the moment that there should be no, it shouldn't be controversial to say that drug policy is failing. The challenge is there's enormous vested interest in keeping things going exactly the same way. And there's a vested interest, you know, in kind of maintaining the types of relationships that are perpetuated by the the over-policing of our drug laws. And particularly, in, you know, in the case of race, in the case of gender, you know, in the, in the case of class differences, all of these are sustained by the way we police drug policy. If we're going to have a dramatic shift, it means retraining people. It means a complete shift in our our norms and social policy. And that just seems like such a huge undertaking for so many of our countries. You mean it just overwhelmed people think oh, it's just too difficult. So we'll just sit here and carry on because at least we know what we're doing and we've got a job. And I, I was always stuck when I first went to Vienna and looked at those UN buildings in Vienna. I thought, Can there really be so many people in there trying to control the, the drugs trade? I mean, it's an institution in itself, isn't it? And no, it's, it's this bureaucratization, isn't it? And it's kind of, you know, the whole thing about the UN system is it's there to preserve consensus. So we're not going to see any meaningful change coming out of the UN system, in my view. I mean, there are some people who, you know, are kind of far more optimistic and think that we're going to see this, you know, gradual change. We're going to see slight modifications of, of you know, treaty obligations and that we're going to have more flexibility. But the reality, you know, more flexibility in the United States or Canada doesn't necessarily translate into reform in places like the Philippines. And we've just got this kind of two-track system, haven't we? Incredibly repressive in some countries and legalization, flexibilization in others. And all of this with, un- with under one universal system is, is just not sustainable to my mind. No. So you think it's going to be up to individual countries to make the move. But of course, that then leaves them always the, the out. Because all the discussions I've had with politicians in Britain over the last 30 odd years, they always say, oh, we can't do anything because of UN. We want, mustn't break our UN treaties. We, know, we mustn't not get out of step with uh, you know, all those agreements we've made. And unless you do that, nothing will change. I agree completely. I mean, there has to be, you know, an, for, to my mind, an overhaul of the treaty system. I mean, I would actually probably go as far as to, you know, question what is the purpose of these treaties in the modern period. You know, so much could really kind of be 
shelved off to United Nations Development Programme, to United Nations Women. You know, there are other areas where we can be delivering the kind of public health, the resources, all these kind of things, addressing drug policy without that going through the UNODC. So, you know, I do think there is a big argument for major treaty overhaul and change, but that's not the kind of conversation that many people want to, to have because it's so radical. The implications of it are just too dramatic. No, do you think it's got to the situation where people have been so, you know, they've been saying the so thing, same thing for so long. It's like a kind of mantra that they, they're not allowed to think differently. <laughs> Their brains kind of been sort of ground into this groupthink. No, it is, isn't it? And there's, it's kind of a reluctance to think out of the box. And so what we're left with is this kind of tinkering at the edges of the existing policy paradigm. And, and the problem here, this type of policy bricolage where you're just playing with the existing model, is that I think that reforms within that existing model actually run the danger of making the situation even worse. You know, more harm than good can actually come out of badly designed and implemented alternative development policies or badly designed and implemented cannabis decriminalization policies, you know. So there are real risks with the way that people are trying to take reform forward at the moment. But we just need a bit more imagination, you know, kind of more thinking out of the box, as I said. But uh, people who work in drug policy from that kind of official angle just aren't, they're, they're so constrained in how far they can think this through, so constrained in the changes that they can introduce. Yeah, indeed. You, know, you look at the sort of revolution in terms of things like vaccine rollouts and, and the Gates Foundation. You don't see the, the similar kind of large philanthropists taking up the, the, the challenge of drugs, which is arguably much greater in terms of the, you know, the harms and the, um, and the disadvantage and probably even the death. Is that just because de- you know, drugs have been so stigmatised for so long that people are not capable of thinking beyond it? Well, probably. I mean, we've just done, I've just done two, two edited collections. One's a book on uh, women and enforcement and the other is a book on drugs and development. And we were very, very fortunate um, with both of those books that we were able to get financial support. I was enabled through the Open Society Foundations, their global drug policy program, the philanthropy of George Soros. Um, enabled me to do, you know, a pretty serious and large body of work over three years exploring how women across the world are impacted by drug policy enforcement. If it wasn't for that kind of philanthropy, it would have been a real challenge for me to kind of get the resources together to do this type of research. So, so yeah, you know, the people, people have concerns about their profile, their reputation. That's why so many actors in the development sector, for example, are not getting engaged with drug policy, even though with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, this is a debate that development actors also need to be having. But we're, again, it's back to this problem of siloing and reputational concerns. So there's not a lot of money to do the kind of research that needs to be being done right now, I would argue, on drug policy. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll come back to the the issue of women and drug policy in a minute in your book. But just tell us a bit about you. You spent seven years, did you say, in University in Budapest. And tell us a bit about that and why you went there and what you learned there. Yes, it was it was interesting for me. I was I was previously in peace studies at the University of Bradford, and then I had the opportunity to work in a new school of public policy, which had been um, set up at Central European University, which is an American university in Budapest. And this was, you know, a great opportunity. It was fascinating for me to be able to live and work in Hungary, you know, at a time of pretty dramatic change in Hungary as well, where you had the kind of rise of this, you know, the populist, the liberalism of Viktor Orban. Um, the university itself uh, has has now kind of part left Budapest because the political tensions between Mr. Soros and Viktor Orban. But it was a fantastic opportunity in terms of it enabled me to work with a lot of people um, from Central Europe, from the stands, from the former Soviet Union. You know, it really was an amazing uh, learning environment because we never had one student uh, from more than one country. You know, it was kind of it was such <laughs> a diverse country, highly, highly multinational country, uh, university. 
So it was just absolutely fascinating. It really was. So it was great to be able to be in Budapest and have that experience for seven years. And obviously, you know, there was freedom of movement then. It was a lot more liberal environment for working in Europe. And I, you know, I'm really very glad that I had the opportunity uh, to take advantage of that freedom of movement when I had it. It's kind of disconcerting, though, that even within the you know the European community, that things are going backwards in terms of liberty and free speech and that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, for for us in Hungary, I mean, it was, you know, a constant battle over this situation in, in countries like Poland and Hungary, where we see such regressive steps around, you know, uh, lesbian, gay, LGBT mm. rights, you know, around uh, laws on drug policy, very, very conservative, patriarchal, misogynistic retrenchment. Um, the great opportunities that I did have in particular were things like being able to work with the Roma community, doing harm reduction projects with the Roma community, but kind of seeing those levels of exclusion and poverty and racism in a, you know, a different European context was, was quite startling, quite an eye-opener. I mean, I'd be, I'm genuinely interested in why you think the pendulum is swinging back towards the right, towards petty nationalism. Is it the media? Is it you know, politicians? Is it Syria, the Syrian refugees? Is it some kind of, what's driving this? Because I find it so disconcerting. I never imagined it would happen. Although, of course, we saw it happen in Yugoslavia 20 years ago, isn't it? It's different in each country, I think. It's, you know, um, it's been very interesting for me, obviously, to kind of come back from Budapest to the, the context in the, in the UK, where I think also we're seeing this rise of a very kind of exclusivist nationalism, not the kind of inclusivist civic nationalism that, you know, tends to underpin most manifestations of patriotism. I think in the context of countries like Hungary and Poland, uh, what we saw was, you know, a real backlash against what was perceived to be external interference, external intervention in Hungarian um, domestic and political affairs. We had the whole situation with the Syrian uh, refugee crisis coming through the country, which was very, very poorly handled by the Hungarian government. But again, even though we had best practice and lessons learned from the European Union, that wasn't really rolled out in Hungary in the way you know we dealt with the, the refugee situation coming through that country there. It's a search for identity, but there's also the, you know, the very crude political reality. This is about, you know, media control. It's about appointments in the judiciary that enable a, a far more authoritarian kind of government profile. So there's the political manoeuvres and there's the part of the political culture. But ultimately, I think what we're seeing is this kind of retrenchment back into nativist ideals. It's very, very problematic. What is the solution? Small question, of course. <laughs> What is the solution to the rise of populist nativism in Central Europe? More effective oversight by the European Union and actually implementing its own democracy standards would probably be a start. Right. Okay. Well, I, think I wouldn't disagree with you there. Anyway, we can't, you know, it's very difficult for us after Brexit to have it make any sensible kind of comments, isn't it? It's, very, it's unfortunate at all levels. Well, let's focus now a bit on your new book, which is called Shifting the Needle. That's a very interesting title. Tell us about that. So... What we've tried to do with this book, um, I wrote this with, well, I edited this book. Um, there was myself, there was um, one of my former students, um, another former student at the Central European University. And what we were aiming to do with this book really was to try and look at how drug policy enforcement is impacting women. And to date, so much of the attention, I mean, we don't really need to re rehearse this, but so much of the attention in terms of the drug policy literatures and research has been very much focused on men and, and young boys. So what we were essentially trying to do here is shift the needle and let's start having a look at how women and girls are impacted by drug policy enforcement. And what was interesting for us was how, you know, this expansion of illicit drug markets, this, you know, dramatic change, rise of synthetic drug markets, how this is really transforming the role of women within the illicit markets, both in terms of drug use and also in terms of drug supply. 
So we wanted to try and capture that, but, you know, we wanted to try and break with a research framework, which has tended to very much focus on the experience in Europe and North America. And what we wanted to try and capture in this book is what is the experience of women in Ghana, Senegal, Tanzania, Nigeria, Hong Kong, Mexico. So we really tried to do this international perspective. We had a series of four workshops in different parts of the world where we you know, would bring various stakeholders and organisations from women's groups together to talk about how women are impacted. And what was interesting was just this, you know, commonality and universality of themes, you know, the kind of misogyny, the lack of access to treatment services, lack of access to to justice in many cases, you know, women who don't really want to go to court or disputes or into um, any form of treatment because they're scared of losing access to their children. Care responsibilities weigh very heavily. Lack of appropriate treatment services was a big issue. And this was universalised. And I think that was what was the most significant outcome for us was this is felt from Russia to Ghana, from Canada to Germany. This is this is a global problem for women. Mm. Actually, just as a side, um, Drug Science has done a little bit of research on this, trying to come up with a, a metric of comparative harm that different drugs might do to the parenting capacity. Because we were, we, strangely, it was funded by an American Republican senator who, who was horrified to discover that in Mississippi, women could have their children taken away if they were caught possession of tiny amounts of cannabis but they could drive their tree into a car whilst drunk and put their lives of their children at risk. And they'd just be allowed to walk away and take the children back. And he wanted to know if there were any, with any data. And in fact, we worked with the Global Drug Survey to pull together data, the comparative impact of, of drugs on parenting. And, and that, that work is ongoing and will be published quite soon. And can you remember any of the, the specific findings from that piece of research? Well, I mean, it was simple things like alcohol is very bad, not least because it's, it disinhibits people and they, and they lose judgment, but also because it's associated with aggression and also because it's so common. I suppose you know, the simple output is that to treat alcohol differently from anything else is completely arbitrary and, in fact, counterproductive. And if you, really, if you want to focus on one drug to intervene with in relation to parenting, it's got to be alcohol because it damages so, so many, many families and so many children in families. And you'd think that would be the kind of obvious focus for the kind of scholarly attention if you're concerned about health and families as, as, as you've written about you know, yourself. I think the challenge that we saw in terms of, of the drug markets was that we have all these ideals about what's a good mother, what's a good woman. And so, you know, kind of drug use was seen as being even more unacceptable than alcohol use for so many of these women. And so what we tend to see is that there are these terrible violations of rights to privacy, you know, sexual health rights, uh, because a pregnant woman, you know, the, the, the fetus itself now becomes the responsibility of the, the state in the US, which is going to protect this fetus from the woman's drug issue. So, so women, I think, face such different types of challenges in terms of the impact of drug policy enforcement than men do. And these have been, as I said, so underexplored. And the fact they're so universalised and what we were seeing in contexts such as Russia and some of the former Soviet states were women who were trying to get access to treatment services were being relisted in the, the narco registries. These are the registries that are kept of, you know, known drug users. This has implications for jobs. This has implications for childcare, child custody. You know, I mean, it, it has very, very dramatic ramifications for women. And, and overwhelmingly, the big, big issue that we've seen is just this huge increase in the incarceration of women on non-violent, low-level drug-related offences. And it has been a staggering increase. I mean, starting off in the US 
in the 1990s, 800% increase in the number of women incarcerated. And through policy transfer and policy copy, this is basically now kind of spread around this world, you know, very, very punitive legislation and more women being hoovered up in this punitive legislation. Thailand, Brazil, the United States, wherever we go, we're seeing this, this terrible model of more women being incarcerated for nonviolent drug-related offences. And the impacts on families and communities is staggering. And this is true in Britain as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Apart from Scotland seems to be kind of going in a slightly different direction in terms of incarceration of women has been more related to, to other low level nonviolent offences. Certainly in England and Wales, we've seen more women going to prison on drug related offences and also foreign national women who are going to prison on, on drug related offences. And that that kind of category, that group of women should also be a major concern for people who are seeking drug policy reform, because we have women who are coming into the UK trafficking drugs, smuggling drugs, but with no real understanding of what kind of sanction or sentence they'll face when they arrive here. And most of these women, from the kind of research that's been done in Latin America, here and in Central and Eastern Europe, most of these women have childcare responsibilities, frequently single women, head of the household, they'll leave the child at home while they're engaged in this kind of illicit activity, and then they don't go home because they're then kind of saddled with these long punitive sentences. What happens to the children when their mums don't come back? And that's, you know, that's the big dilemma here in terms of the enforcement gap. Hi, it's David Nutt here again. I want to take a moment to thank all of the drug science community members. In a world of paid sponsorships, political and commercial interference, drug science is and always will be independent. If you value the show as an educational resource and want to help keep us going, you can do so at drugscience.org.uk. Without our community, the dissemination of unbiased information would not be possible. By becoming a drug science community member, you help to create a world where drug control is rational and evidence-based, where drug use is better informed and drug users are understood, where drugs are used to heal, not harm. Furthermore, by becoming a premium community member, you will receive a signed copy of my autobiography, access to exclusive events. At the end of the season, we will be hosting an exclusive Q&A podcast episode with all of our premium community members, where you can ask me anything. You can find out how to do this in the show notes. So now, thank you, and back to the show. Yeah, I remember when I was on the ACMD, probably around about 2007, there was a lot of interest in the Nigerian women being used as drug mules coming into Britain. And um, we did a little bit of research on that and looked at talked to some experts. And as usual, the, uh, the Dutch had got it right. And, and we discovered that the, the Dutch would basically uh, find the drugs, take it off them, and put them back on the plane and send them home. Uh-huh. And when we said to the Home Office that this seems to us an extraordinary, sensible and rational approach for a number of reasons. We don't fill our prisons and they go back to their families, you know, and they're doing it for their families almost always. Often they're being forced to do it. Home Office went absolutely berserk. No, no, you know, you, you've got to lock them up. You've got to fill up. You know, I mean, you, you've got to punish them. And, and as if there's any way in which that would be useful either to them or as a way of deterring others. I mean, it was just such a primitive and kind of blinkered approach. I, I, just, I felt very distressed by it all. And it was a very expensive approach. You know, Absolutely. It, was, it was costing us more money to incarcerate Jamaican uh, female nationals in this country than we were actually giving to countries like Jamaica in development assistance. I mean, the priorities are completely wrong, and which goes back to the point you made at the beginning, doesn't it, about what's the vested interest in keeping this model going? And obviously locking people up, that kind of you know more punitive response to this problem rather than the development-focused response in country is, is what's so difficult to break down. You know, It's those kind of organisational and institutional silos. Quite, quite. And do you think that your focus on women is maybe an interesting lever to try to get change because it's so 
self-evidently destructive to the children that it may be with the hearts of even the most hard-line prohibitionists could at least be sort of opened a little by this kind of dialogue. Well, we're very much hoping so. And in many respects, what we've tried to do with this edited collection is bring together academics, people from the NGO sector, and also uh, women with lived experience. One of the reasons I was so keen to do this book and try and pull all these voices together is because through my research, I've had the opportunity to work with some fantastic campaigns, you know, Anyone's Child, Transform, these kind of organisations. And I did a, uh, an event with Anyone's Child and some of the um, parents spoke at that event. And I found that just such a profoundly moving and very, very distressing event. I'm a parent myself. My daughter's just gone to university this year. And I know that drug wars don't keep my child safe, you know, as, as a mother and as a parent. And being at the Anyone's Child event, as I said, I just found so, so terribly upsetting. It was also very, you know, empowering to see that parents were kind of trying to take take some kind of learning experience mm, from the mm. loss of children and the failures, failures of UK drug policy. But the, the point of that experience for me was that it's not for me to tell the stories of these parents. And what I wanted to do was to have one of these parents telling her story in the book. So we have that in the book, in the Shifting the Needle book. Similarly, you know, we have stories of people who, you know, from LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, you know, our colleague Suzanne Sharkey from LEAP, you know, people actually talking about their experience of not being able to get the help and the support and the treatment that they've needed. My challenge, David, is, you know, for, for all academics is that we live in this kind of ivory tower where we're pushed constantly to produce this kind of data and research. And it's all quantitative. It's all about numbers and statistics. And it's all about us interpreting these experiences. I'm very uncomfortable working with that kind of approach. And for me, this was about empowering people to tell their stories it's about giving agency back to women and back to women who have been, you know, very much victimised and traumatised. And as I said, it's about, you know, coming out of that ivory tower and looking at what academics can learn from NGOs, what we can learn from each other and how we can collectively listen to the voices of the people who are really at the front line of these enforcement experiences. Yeah, I have no doubt that the personal stories are perhaps one of the most, maybe the most powerful argument we have in terms of changing people's attitudes. It's certainly the, the children with epilepsy who, who've benefited from medical cannabis and whose lives have been transformed have been enormously influential in eventually getting our government to at least accept that cannabis is a medicine. They're still not getting it prescribed on the NHS, but at least it's not illegal to buy it here now. As you say, some of the case examples of particularly the MDMA deaths have been very, you know, they're very, very moving and they argue very powerfully for a, a more rational approach. If people knew, at least knew what they were taking, they could make a rational choice. Are they, are they in your book? Have you got those examples in your book? Yes, I do. Um, we have Rose from Anyone Ch Anyone's Child, who's in the book, uh, Fiona from Recovering Justice, um, Happy, who's in Input, the international network of people using drugs in Tanzania. And so, you know, it's the vo it's voices from very, very different perspectives, from the perspective of, you know, a mother who's lost a child, from a mother who's a drug user trying to get support. You know, the other thing that we came across pretty significantly, not so much in the context of the UK, but very much so uh, internationally, was the violence and the sexual violence and the gender-based violence that women face either in their capacity as, as drug-using people or as the partners mm. of drug-using people. But again, very difficult for women to get the kind of support that they might perhaps need or protection that they might perhaps need uh, because there's so much taboo and so many restrictions. No woman who's suffering gender-based violence at the hands of a drug-using male is necessarily going to seek protection because of the concerns about what might happen to that male and, you know, what might be the response to his criminal activity. So the policing response. So 
women, you know, just came across constantly as very, very trapped, very vulnerable, very insecure. But at the same time, and I think this is the other important kind of lessons learned for us, you know, women have not had the agency. They've not been able to speak of, of their own experiences. So much has come through the lens of the male perspective and the male researcher. And also women use drugs for pleasure. You know, I mean, the work of people like Alex Aldridge, Ingrid Walker, you know, drug use and pleasure is something that's not really explored in the research that we do. And we really don't like... Julia, you must wash your mouth out. People couldn't... <laughs> How could you possibly think that that could be true? <laughs> But absolutely. They're all crazed addicts, don't you know? <laughs> it's a terrible thought, isn't it, that we might have pleasure or that, you know, we might use intoxicants for pleasure. The wrong kind of pleasure. It's Indeed it is. Mm, well, apart from alcohol, <laughs> absolutely. One of the things you've, drug science is going to be doing over the next year is we're, we're going to try to put together a, a book around the uh, Misuse of Drugs Act. It's 50 years since the Misuse of Drugs Act, 50 years since the 1971 UN Conventions, and we're... We're um, going to try to leave a drug science legacy that talks about the policy and, and the multiple failings. And we were certainly thinking about having a, a section on uh, personal stories. So we'll have to we'll certainly get on to your book and, and see how we can best present those kind of tales from a, in, a, in a UK perspective. Oh, well, I, I think that would be great. You might want to help us. I don't know if you've got spare capacity. But the, the thing is as well about, you know, enabling people to tell their stories is also in the other really, really important aspects of this. And this is why we were so lucky with the funding that we got from OSF and Import um, and also from the um, Global Commission on Drug Policy for the Drugs and Development Book. The really important thing here is open access, because there's there's no point enabling people to kind of give their stories and try and kind of give this grounded perspective if these books are then going to cost 70, 80 quid on the shelves and people can't access them. So I think overall, if we're trying to kind of break new ground in drug policy and try and kind of bridge the divides and enable these voices to be heard, it's not just about giving them a platform. It's also about an accessible platform and open access really for, for, for so much of this work is the only way forward because people simply cannot afford, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of, as I said, you know, these very, very expensive books, dusty books on shelves. Well, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, we've through our, our journal, Drug Science Policy and Law, that's completely open access. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important point. Uh, I think we will do that with the book. I don't, I mean, I, I think we can afford to, uh, provided we don't have to pay the authors, which we won't, of course. No, of course not. <laughs> so you're back in Manchester. What are you doing in Manchester now? Then? What's your next campaign? Or well, presumably it's more of this. It will be more of this. I mean, obviously, you know, to kind of come back to the UK where we're having discussions about a law, the drug law, which is 50 years old, you know, this is a, a drug law that's older than Thatcherism, you know, predates the collapse of communism and before the internet and HIV. I mean, it's it's not fit for purpose. It's, you know, it's very difficult to think of any other public policy area where such an arcane policy with such a, a legacy of indisputable failure would still be allowed to carry on. I mean, I can't imagine this in education or transport or housing or you know, any other areas. So, so still going to be focusing on that. I was very, very fortunate. I received a British Academy Global Professorship, mm-hmm. which is a four-year funded piece of uh, research in criminology at the University of Manchester. So essentially what I'm going to be doing there is two pieces of research. One of these is looking what happens to UK drug markets after Brexit. So what's happening to supply chains, what's happening, you know, in our dark net drug markets, which are, are pretty sizable and significant here. But also how is the UK government re-navigating its relations with countries like Colombia and Afghanistan, Pakistan, the old kind of trafficking routes into the UK. Now we're out of the EU. How is that kind of foreign policy and drugs policy nestling together? And then the other element of this research is looking at those countries where we have had decriminalisation. 
I'm sure you saw this week, you know, Norway now moving towards decriminalisation. I mean, I think if British people knew what was going on in the rest of the world in terms of decriminalisation experiments, they might be a little bit surprised. But looking at those decriminalisation and seeing if they help improve the quality of drug policy by enabling us to bring into policy processes, again, people with lived experience. If people can talk about their drug purchase patterns, drug use, how they become involved in this in the drug trade, then it enables us to develop better drug policies, I would argue. So that's really the aim there, looking at whether reform improves the quality of our drug policies. Obviously, that leads us to ask, well, you know, what are the goals of a reform drug policy going to be? So does decriminalisation enable us to achieve better health outcomes, better community security outcomes? That's what we're trying to look at there. So those are the two elements of this piece of research. And back to Manchester to do it. And I'm very, very fortunate. The reason I really wanted to be at Manchester University was because the Department of Criminology there is fantastic. I have wonderful colleagues there. And Particularly for me, Judith Aldridge, who really, you know, has pioneered a lot lot of the work on um, darknet drug markets and also women's drug purchases and drug sales on darknet drug markets. But the other great value of Manchester is it really gives the opportunity for interdisciplinarity, but interdisciplinarity in a broader way. And what we're trying to do also with this grant is move out of the old social science silo, you know, only talking to people in law or criminology or development. And what we're trying to do now is have these wider conversations with people in clinical sciences pharmacology, trying to, you know, ensure we have this better bridging between social and medical and clinical sciences, because we're all working in silos. And that, I think, is very different from places like Switzerland or Portugal, where we saw these drug policy reforms move forward quite successfully. Well, as you know, drug science as a group, we're a very broad church. So we're very happy to uh, discover that you're moving in the same way. And of course, we'll do what we can to help. And we look forward to having you feedback to us over the next four years as your research goes forward. Can I ask you a little bit about the darknet? How do you research the darknet? Well, you can ask me about the about the darknet, but I would probably you see I've kind of moved slightly away from the darknet owing to the, the the focus on gender recently. In terms of researching the darknet, the type of work I was doing a couple of years ago, um, I was at Swansea at the Global Drug Policy Observatory there, and what we were just trying to do in the kind of original you know kind of development of these darknet drug markets was just looking at how people were selling on there, how they were rating sellers on there, looking at how the darknet drug markets were basically mimicking what was going on in the lightnet markets, such as eBay and, you know, kind of places like that. So it was really looking at how drug sellers were marketing, how they were transposing the model that you have in the in the kind of formal markets onto these darknet markets. To access the darknet markets, you have to go through the Onion router, the TOR, you have to download this piece of software. But obviously then with digital encryption and Bitcoin, what we're seeing was this, you know, like new technologies, which were kind of generating these completely different types of markets where if you want to be buying and selling on darknet markets, you need, you know, a bit of technological skill, you know, a little bit of intelligence. It's not like the kind of selling drugs on the street anymore. The kind of skills you need to be interacting in drug markets are changing. And this means, you know, we're seeing a lot more women are coming into darknet drug markets now selling drugs because it's not this kind of very masculinized space that street sales used to be. But my colleague, people like Judith Aldridge at Manchester University, their kind of research is more looking at kind of feedback sites on the darknet, you know, how people are using these sites for harm reduction, because it's much easier to talk about the dangers of drugs on these darknet sites, you know, how what are, you know, how can we, how can we kind of come up? How can we come down? You can have more honest conversations on the darknet and scraping and just getting information on volume of sales and, you know, value of sales and that kind of information. So some technical skill for sure. But I think what we're tending to find these days is that most young people do have these technical skills. And that's why it's all the more important that, you know, not just ourselves, but also those who are concerned about security and harm are also kind of up to date with some of these technological shifts and changes. 
And I often wondered whether the Darknet actually, in the end, could force the international community to change because it's failed to deal with kind of what you might call sort of, you know, person-to-person drug dealing face-to-face through prohibition and criminalization. But so it's bound to fail with the dark web. So is this not the kind of the kind of last straw in the, the traditional prohibitionist UN approach? Is it inevitable that it's going to collapse and they have to do something different? And is this what's going to finally trigger a change? <laughs> but you see, the notion of the notion of collapse is kind of predicated on the idea, I guess, isn't it? That, you know, system collapse, drug policy collapse, yeah. that people and politicians aren't benefiting from this system. And the reality is, is as, as we know, that the policy may be failing, but there are political advantages from this policy. And that's what keeps the traction underneath criminalisation and this kind of prohibition model. So, you know, are we going to move towards some collapse? Well, there's still political gain to be had from this. I completely agree your point. You know, it's the kind of, you know, trying to use the same old strategy, the same old, tra- you know, tactics, interrupting the darknet drug markets, you know, we take down Silk Road and then we have Silk Road 2. We take down Silk Road 2, we've got Silk Road 3. So everything that we've seen and we know fails is being perpetuated in this model of dealing with these online drug markets. So, yes, I think we are heading towards you know, a pretty significant policy failure. Darknet drug markets can change the drug market landscape. But I think the key thing at this point, David, is that this is still very much a kind of European, North American thing. Darknet drug markets are not sizable you know, in kind of other parts of the world that we're interested in, Latin America, West Africa. So at the moment, it's a very, and it's very concentrated on specific types of drugs, as you know, you know, synthetic psychedelics and cannabis. So it's not really enabling us to kind of link into, you know, problematic drug use and, um, and in particular things like the heroin markets. No. Well, just for the last few minutes, I want, let's talk about decriminalization because it was very disappointing to me to hear Keir Starmer say earlier this week, well, he's not sure about it. You know, I mean, you know, he's worried it'll open up problems, blah, 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 you know. I suppose that's not surprising from a man who used to be head of prosecutions, but, uh, you know, for the, you know, whatever it was, the DPS. But how are we going to get a rational discussion about decriminalisation in the UK, that free from politics and free from the, uh, the Daily Mail? Oh, well, I'm just back in the country, David. So, you know, I'm here to learn from the Brits who've been here from this time. I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I was, I was really, really staggered uh, by Keir Starmer's uh, remarks of the day. I mean, you know, kind of in British politics at the moment, there's very few things that make you gasp. But Keir Starmer's comments did make me gasp. And they in particular surprised me given, I think what we're seeing is very, very strong leadership from Scotland at the moment. You know, I think Nicola Sturgeon is really taking on this drug death issue and showing a kind of maturity and sense of community that is simply not happening right now in English politics. How do we take it forward? Well, you know, the big challenge is ultimately that it's simply not a priority and the big challenge for Keir Starmer right now is focusing on 2024. But I think with, you know, one drug death every seven hours in this country, we can't really wait for Keir Starmer in 2024 and it's up to us to be taking these conversations forward, isn't it? Well, totally. And I think the public are certainly smarter than the politicians. The public know that people dying isn't wrong, isn't right. Actually, well, I'm very interested in what you're going to discover with Norway. I remember a few years ago, I had a a conversation with a Norwegian uh, MP. He, he rang me up. He said, I want, I want to understand this drug harm assessments that you've been doing. And obviously, I said, why? And he said, well, you know, we're the richest country in the world. And two of my friends who I went to school with are dead of heroin overdoses. <laughs> two out of the 25. I said, wow, and that's why you've got to do something, isn't it? And 
And that's because, of course, their policy was that you stigmatize everyone, you didn't have any therapy, and, uh, and you hoped that the fear of uh, embarrassment would stop people using, um, but it didn't, and they died. And so I'm really pleased that they're, they're looking towards a, a more rational approach. And as you say, if Norway can do it sensibly and, and show it works, then you know, what's, there, what's there for us to worry about? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, Switzerland, as you know, and Portugal, Portugal was just coming out of authoritarianism at the time, wasn't it? You know, f- far more conservative political contexts have been able to take forward drug policy reform. And, you know, just not here. And I think, again, it's uh, just a real reticence to have some serious grown up conversations that we need to have in this country, not just about drug policy, but as so many, you know, facets of life in this union right now, there's, there's big conversations to be had. But people are too worried about losing the votes to have those conversations, aren't they? Well, that's how it seems to be. It seems to be, you know, we have just m- mirrored the American, you know, we're, I'm stronger than you, I'm harder than you on drugs, which has got Clinton locking people up forever. And it's, you know, history is really rather appalling in this field. And so it does need someone to break the mould. And unfortunately, the Lib Dems tried. And the Greens as well. And, yeah. you know, but I mean, I, th- I think it's just really, uh, you know, kind of getting people to understand. And this is what, you know, we tend to find, you know, the lack of knowledge about drug policy, I think, in this country is very, very, very limited. You know, when you talk to people and say we're part of an international system, we can only do this, we can't do that. I mean, people don't really understand the kind of, you know, the, the bigger structures that we operate under. And I think it's about trying to kind of develop that drugs education. But for the UK in particular, we, we this is an embarrassing situation for us. You know, we're one of the world's largest exporters of pharmaceutical heroin, re-exports of pharmaceutical cocaine cannabis, you know, and we don't make these medicines and treatments available to our own citizens. I mean, this is an unconscionable position, surely, you know, to sell GW biopharmaceuticals to Jazz the other week for 7 billion, you know, cannabis science being exported from this country is just staggering. It is. Well, all I can say is I'm glad you're back here. I hope, Thank I, you. hope I hope it's better in the long run than being in Hungary. Um, and I look forward to working with you and having you contribute to drug science over the, over the next decade. So, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, David, and thank you for your leadership on this. You're an inspiration, so thank you. That's very kind of you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.